Ever since June 16th of 2021, when the news of Arizona State football being under NCAA investigation news became public, it was a given that not only the rest of that calendar year was going to be a rocky journey for the program, but that 2022 would be anything but a smooth ride. And sure enough, in a span of just a few days, starting in late January of this year, offensive coordinator Zach Hill resigned due to his involvement regarding the alleged recruiting violations that were found during the NCAA investigation. And then defensive coordinator and recruiting coordinator Antonio Pierce resigned himself to pursue coaching opportunities in the NFL. And just last week, it was announced that he is the new linebackers coach for the Las Vegas Raiders. But the latest bombshell regarding the team took place on February 17th when Jaden Daniels, the starting quarterback for the last three years, decided to put his name in the transfer portal after announcing just about two and a half months ago that he was coming back to play for the Sun Devils in 2022. So this flurry of activity in the last three or so weeks has obviously elicited a lot of strong opinions among the Sun Devil Nation, but also raised a lot of questions for the immediate and long-term future of the program. Many of you have sent your questions to me, and that will be the lion's share of this podcast episode, replying to each and every question that you, the ASU fan, has right here and right now, about the team that you have a great vested interest in. So thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get this thing started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And whether seeing this on my own website or on various social media platforms, it's undeniable sensing the high level of frustration, and justifiably so, that Arizona State fans have with their football program right now. And as mentioned in my opening statement, there have been plenty of recent developments that have just piled one on top of the other that are creating a high sense of angst and frustration with the Sun Devil Nation. So thank you very much to all the ASU fans that did send me questions, and I'm going to address each and every one of them in today's podcast. But before I get to answering those questions, I know that those tuning into this podcast would also like to hear my own opinion on the topic of ASU football before I answer any specific questions regarding the program about the various matters that are concerning the team. So the way I look at it, the recruiting violation allegations that have caused four coaches to no longer be in the program And the fifth one, Antonio Pierce, to leave the program before any concrete findings were presented that would compel him to leave the program at that time, really have put ASU in a position where it's not only hard for them to succeed this upcoming season, but probably also in the next one or two campaigns to follow. But aside from that, this NCAA investigation has definitely put into question the job security of both head coach Herm Edwards and athletic director Ray Anderson, a person who was directly responsible for hiring ASU's current head coach due to the long-time relationship he has with Edwards. Now, to say the job security of those two individuals is on shaky ground would be a gross understatement, in my opinion. I'll admit that I was somewhat surprised when I heard that Herm Edwards, who at age 68 was never believed to be here in Tempe for the long term as it is, was going to continue to coach in the 2022 season. And again, Edwards' performance and the NCAA investigation does anything but strengthen the status of Ray Anderson, who not only brought Edwards on board, but established a very high job performance expectations for the program following that hire, and those expectations have not even come close to being matched. 
Now, I believe that 2022 will be Herm Edwards' last season in Tempe as head coach. But the caveat I'm going to make regarding this statement is that we don't know the schedule of the NCAA and when they're going to release their notice of allegations. Now, in the event that they wait only until after the season begins in September, then it's reasonable that Edwards will coach the remainder of that season. But there's definitely a possibility, and it's anybody's guess as to what kind of percentage to put on this scenario, that the notice of allegations by the NCAA could be released in the next few months. And those findings, you would think, would make it impossible to employ Edwards for the, for this year and compel ASU to hire somebody from within to be an interim head coach, because let's face it, the coaching candidate market is fairly dry right now in late February and will only be that much more barren in the spring or the summer. And the shaky job status of Edwards certainly brings into light the status of Anderson. Relieving both an athletic director and a head football coach in the same calendar year is a rarity just for the simple reason that it deeply shakes the athletic department and even those moves might be done with good intentions if not forced by an aforementioned NCAA investigation. It's a significant shock to the system that would be hard for any program to recover in short order. At the same time, let's say that Edwards does leave before Anderson does. How hard would it be for any athletic director to bring in a quality head football coach being hired by an athletic director that could very well be in the job for just one more year? That's definitely not a proposition that would attract high-caliber candidates to take the reins in Tempe. So as you can see, this is a complex situation on steroids, if you will, when it comes to the future of both Edwards and Anderson. And trying to guess any timeline for their employment in Tempe would be impossible, in my opinion. And the news about Jaden Daniels entering the transfer portal has only made that situation, as it pertains to Edwards and Anderson, that much more complex. And while this podcast is not solely devoted to Jaden Daniels and his decision, let's spend a few minutes on what, what transpired, as I mentioned, last Thursday the 17th. Now, something that the Sun Devil Nation at large may not be aware of, but something I've shared with my subscribers on devilsdigest.com for several months now, is the fact that offensive coordinator Zach Hill and Daniels did not have a relationship that was conducive for success. And it's no coincidence that Daniels' numbers and the passing game in general have taken quite the nosedive in productivity and efficiency from 2019 to 2021. Now, I know that a COVID-2020 season probably should not be a fair barometer to really judge the success of a new offensive system being implemented and the quarterback trying to really execute that scheme week in and week out with many adverse effects off the field that are acting as a huge hindrance. But in 2021, everything was back to normal in terms of preseason preparations, let alone an offensive coordinator and a starting quarterback that at least on paper should have a better understanding of each other, have a more established relationship than the year before, let alone Jenny Daniels now entering his third year as a starter, having some kind of rate of development that you would expect in terms of just the normal progression of a quarterback. So for the passing game to struggle as much as it did this past season is anything but indicative of of a successful offensive coordinator as it relates to him being able to implement a system that can advance the passing game. And at the same time, also having a quarterback who is an upperclassman at this point that is not performing at the level that you would expect him to play at. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that 
is that it's important to keep in mind that when Daniels, just days after the regular season ended, told Herm Edwards that he's on board for the 2022 season, and Herm Edwards, without a doubt, supported Daniels and wanted him to be his starter this upcoming season. But when all this took place, Zach Hill was still expected to be the offensive coordinator in Tempe in 2022. The advanced discussions between Hill and Auburn to serve as the next offensive coordinator really only took place only after Edwards and Daniels basically established that the signal caller will be back in Tempe for one more season. Now, as we know, Auburn did reportedly have reservations about hiring Hill, who was strongly supported by his former head coach, Brian Harzen from Boise State, who is now the head coach at, at Auburn and is on very shaky ground himself, but that's a different story. But Auburn decided that Hill being part of a program that's under an NCAA investigation is something that could hurt Auburn if and when they decided to make that hire because, after all, this is a school that was dealing with its own NCAA mess as it relates to their basketball program. So Auburn decides to pass on Hill, and Edwards, in a move that I think many disagreed with, including myself, welcomed Hill back with open arms, glossing over the fact that he wanted to leave Tempe. So now you can make the argument that Edwards probably knew that he didn't have someone in his Rolodex, so to speak, that could replace Hill and still be considered a high-caliber offensive coordinator, and that's why Edwards' hands were tied and he had to bring back Hill. But again, it's important to mention that Jaden Daniels, even though he might have been happy with the relationship he had with Zach Hill, when he decided to stay at Arizona State, he knew Hill was going to be back in 2022. So Hill needing to resign in late January, did not plant any transfer thoughts in Jaden Daniels' head, if you will. It had nothing, had nothing to do with it. I know for a fact that Daniels and his camp were not pleased by any means with the level of NIL endorsements that he did get from the local community here in the Valley during the 2021 season. And I have no doubt that at a minimum, the NIL was a significant reason for Daniels to leave the program because in the last few weeks, he was shopping his NIL opportunities, not only across the Pac-12, but also across other Power 5 programs before he decided to enter the transfer portal. Now, time will tell if this, this is a move that will pay dividends, pun intended, for Daniels, because there are obviously different level of Power 5 programs out there. And thinking about the dollars of cents that are going to enter your bank account each and every month, should not, at the end of the day, overshadow your opportunity to showcase your skills on an above-average team or better with your hopes of entering the 2023 NFL Draft with any kind of momentum. Now, make no mistake about it. I'm not saying that staying here at ASU would enhance his chances to really further his NFL Draft stock, but if you're going to leave ASU, you better darn well be sure that it's not only just because of the NIL, but also to better yourself as a player. And again, we can't sit here right here right now and say that Daniels did or did not make the right decision before we know not only which program he landed in, but also how is he going to do in the 2022 season? Is he really guaranteed a starting position over there like he virtually was guaranteed here in Tempe? That remains to be seen. Now, as mentioned, I'm not going to judge Daniels by his 2020 numbers. There are just way too many negating factors to give a true assessment of what he did or did not do that year. 
But when you look at the 2021 stats, the first thing that's going to jump at you when it comes to Daniels is having the same number of interceptions as it did touchdowns, 10 each, and averaging only, only 183 yards a game passing. And in the home stretch of the season in the month of November, his highest passing yardage in any of those contests was 166 yards. These are numbers that are greatly paling in comparison to his true freshman year of 2019, where he had over 2,900 yards passing, averaging just over 250 yards, and more importantly, having 17 touchdowns to only two interceptions. Now, I'm not oblivious to the fact that his core group of wide receivers during that year, who are all in the NFL as we speak, have a higher degree of talent, and the scheme overall back then was ultimately one that fit uh, his skill set more than the scheme that Hill tried to implement the last two years. And the receivers that are in Tempe right now, by and large, are not the same level receivers that Daniels had three years ago. And to borrow a term from politics, that's the platform that Daniels is running on, for lack of a better term, when he put his name in the transfer portal. See what I did in 2019? I can do that again in 2022 for your team. And basically, directly or indirectly, asking teams to gloss over what he did or didn't do in the 2020 and 2021 seasons. So I'm curious, like all of you, to see which Power 5 program he lands in and whether he's going to be a starter, if not for the entire season, maybe for the majority of the season, to really make this move make sense on the football field. But make no mistake about it, what takes place off the football field, namely his NIL deals, are going to be at a higher level than that of what she received at Arizona State and that is definitely this significant factor in his decision to actually leave Arizona State. So I know this wasn't exactly a Reader's Digest version of the situation with the football program as it relates to its departing quarterback, its head coach, and athletic director. But I thought it was important for me to express all the thoughts that I had on all of those topics, first and foremost, before I get to the next portion, which is going to be the larger portion of the podcast. And it's replying to you, the Sun Devil fan and the questions that you had about these topics and much more. So I start to answer these questions from the Sun Devil fans. I'll obviously take care of those who take care of me first, and those are my subscribers. If you aren't yet, uh, please join us in the huddle at devilsitis.com. Become a premium subscriber today. As I mentioned, a lot of the points that I brought up earlier are topics I discussed uh, with my customers at length for the last uh, few months. And if you'd like to be part of that uh, conversation, and some other topics are gonna, I'm sure are going to come up in the next few months, uh, please make sure that you are joining us at devilsitis.com as a premium subscriber. So I will start with Santan Devil. When the dust settles coming out of fall camp 2022, do you see Jaden Daniels' departure as a net negative, positive, or neutral for Arizona State football? And that's obviously a great question, and I think we're going to have a pretty good uh, grasp of the quarterback situation in Tempe after fall camp of 2022, and I would say even spring uh, practice that's going to start here next month, and we can see 
whoever the new starting quarterback is going to be, their chemistry with the wide receivers. Do we see the wide receivers group as a whole uh, really stepping up? I have high expectations also for the tight end group to be a big part of the passing game, even bigger than they were in 2021. So spring practice and fall camp can give us a glimpse uh, into that. Right now, I would have to really keep it at a neutral. I want to keep my expectations realistic and in check and not think that Jaden Daniels' departure, just from a pure football perspective, is going to be a positive to the program without actually seeing the offense in in action. Don't forget, there's also a new offensive coordinator, Glenn Thomas, or a ride from UNLV. So much like any first-year offensive coordinator, now he has a challenge of trying to implement his scheme with players that he does not have an established relationship with. How does that all come together and how fast all that comes together is probably the more important question. So right now, I would just really keep it at a neutral difference, if you will, between the Jaden Daniels era and the post-Jaden Daniels era. But I think that from a passing game perspective, the bar was kind of set low in 2021. So I'd like to think the passing game as a whole would perform better in 2022. The next question comes from Sparky BMX or 13. How do the ASU boosters and football player alumni feel about what's going on right now with, with the program? And look, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I'm talking to each and every booster here and, and each and every alumni, but I definitely talked to some of them. And they're, they're obviously very, very dismayed. Uh, they just see the program as a total mess. Uh, again, the firing shot was June when the NCAA investigation process was announced, looking into those recruiting violation allegations. And as we know, uh, a month later, tight ends coach Adam Brenneman was put on admin leave uh, just days into full camp in early August. Both wide receiver coach Prentice Gill and Defensive backs coach Chris Hawkins were also placed on admin leave. All three coaches uh, are no longer um, a part of the part of the program. In, in January of this year, they officially uh, became ex um, assistant coaches at Arizona State. Uh, obviously, you have the resignation of Zach Hill uh, coming coming in late uh, January. The departure of Antonio Pierce, as I mentioned earlier, wasn't a big surprise to me. I don't think to anybody else. Uh, people knew that there was a good chance for the NCAA notice of allegations to implicate, if not implicate heavily, uh, Antonio Pierce and his his involvement in those allegations. And I've mentioned to my subscribers months ago that I didn't think Antonio Pierce was going to stick around uh, and still be a coach at Arizona State while that notice of allegation was being handed down. But nonetheless, yes, I think that both the boosters and the Alumni football players definitely feel that the program is in, a, is in a big mess right now. They don't have faith in Herm Edwards. They don't have faith in Ray Anderson. And I can't even pretend and say that they might be too harsh in their opinions. Uh, basically, uh, this happened under Herm Edwards' watch. Ray Anderson is the individual that is responsible than more, more than any other individual in Tempe for the hiring of Herm Edwards for, for for all this mess to take place, I really just give ASU quite the black eye, a black eye that's been discussed in the national media, let alone local media, uh, going all the way back to last summer, uh, really doesn't elicit any confidence in the boosters or in the former players 
that the situation is going to be changing and changing for the better anytime soon. Uh, like I said, it, it's definitely going to be a process for this program to dig itself out of, out of the uh, big hole that, that, that it does have right now. So I'm not here to really make any uh, sweeping statement that a lot of boosters have left ASU as a result or maybe going to be on the fence right now. I haven't heard anything uh, to, to that extent. I'm curious to see what season ticket sales are really, are really going to look like um, un- under these circumstances. And I'm sure that a lot of ASU alumni football players have already expressed a lot of their opinions about how disappointed they are in the program. And I'm, and I'm sure they are going to continue to express those opinions uh, in the future as well. So I really don't think that any of those group of individuals that I just mentioned really uh, see much hope for a rosy future, no pun intended, for this program uh, in the next year or two. But um, again, I really can't blame them for feeling that way. The next uh, question comes from uh, Doxy Devil and even delves into a little basketball right now. But just in general, they're just asking um, how many more players, both Herm Edwards in football and Bobby Hurley in basketball, are trying to add uh, this, uh, this spring. So let's start uh, with football. And it's really hard to illustrate the exact number game, if you will, in a podcast versus just posting it. But ASU is very close to its 85 scholarship limit. So in terms of adding players from the transfer portal, it is somewhat limited right now. There are a couple of players that might end up being a medical retirement that could free up a little more room. But that is something that is a TBD rather than something etched in stone. But generally speaking, I would expect ASU to add two more wide receivers, one offensive lineman, one defensive lineman, and possibly another cornerback in terms of just addressing what they feel that are the immediate needs on the team. I would expect the majority, if not all of those additions, to take place after spring practice. So we're talking about April, May, maybe even June. Uh, It's definitely not out of the question to add players from the transfer portal even that late. Uh, If you recall, the deadline for players to enter enter the transfer portal and be eligible immediately is going to be May 1st. So you're definitely going to see some flurry of activity in terms of players entering in droves the transfer portal probably the last two weeks of April so they can make that May 1st deadline because, again, it's not only a matter of entering the transfer portal, but also having that one-time exemption of being immediately eligible. And again, all players have to do that before May 1st. So again, I think it might be a somewhat quiet uh, rest of February, March, and maybe a good deal of April in terms of ASU additions. But I think that from, let's say, mid-April at the earliest, all throughout probably maybe even July, I would say at this point, you could see some additions in the positions that I mentioned, two wide receivers, one offensive lineman, one defensive lineman, and one cornerback. When it comes to ASU basketball, uh, ASU right now has two players that have signed a letter of intent, point guard Austin Nunes and center Duke Brenneman. And and those two, just from a pure numbers point, can replace the two players that we know would exhaust their eligibility at the end of the season, uh, point guard Marion Jackson and forward Kimani Lawrence. 
Now, as much as, you know, football fans may not to be happy about the transfer portal and the opportunities that it really allows for a lot of turnover, well, now think about it in basketball terms, and that's a much bigger problem, uh, if you will. And it's really hard to say how many players from the current ASU roster, aside from the two that are, are going to exhaust their eligibility, are actually going to leave Tempe. Uh, you have a player like Marcus Bagley, who's probably the biggest question mark slash X factor in all of this, uh, came into the season as being the best player on the roster uh, due to a knee injury, hasn't played since uh, early November. And as crazy as it may sound, that's not out of the question that Marcus Bagley w- uh, could leave actually for the for the NBA draft. I know Bobby Hurley did say that Marcus Bagley, if he w- were to play college basketball next season, it would be for ASU and nobody else. But that obviously is something that I think is very, very much up in the air. So the short uh, answer would be that the two players that have exhausted their eligibility, ASU already has two players coming in, and they cannot add any additional players unless there was further attrition, unless Marcus Bagley or some other player decided not to come back to the team for one reason or another. So that's how the picture stands right now, but that is a picture that I expect to change. How much to change is a different story, but definitely a picture that will change in the months to come. The next question comes from ASU Freak. What's the over-under for our starting quarterback's passing yards? And, you know, obviously, on its face, kind of a hard question to answer before knowing who that starting quarterback is going to be and if they are capable of actually passing for X amount of yards and are they able to pass something closer to the 2,300 yards that J.D. Daniels passed this past season or maybe closer to the uh, 2,900 yards that Daniels did tally in his freshman year in 2019. But you did uh, ask me a question, so I do need to give you the answer. And I would say the over-under probably would be 2,500 yards. I think that's a reasonable number, again, without knowing who the starting quarterback is going to be. What is a new offensive system going to look like? Is it a scheme that you could see already promising signs in the spring or even fall camp that this is really going to be a scheme that is going to produce a more explosive offense, at least when it comes to passing game numbers? Those are all huge question marks right now, but I think it's reasonable to have the over-under at uh, 2,500. I think setting it lower than that might be just a little too pessimistic. I still think there is some talent here on the team that can get it closer to 2,500. And I definitely won't come out and say a figure that's closer to 3,000 because that would be making way too many unfound assumptions without without spring practice even taking place yet. So 2,500 would be my over-under for the starting quarterback's passing yards. Next question comes from Barber underscore V. How many wins this season do you think ASU will have, assuming that the starting quarterback will be Paul Tyson, the transfer from University of Alabama? And by the way, I also assume that when it's all said and done, Tyson is going to be the starting quarterback. He's basically the one that comes, I feel, with the most experience, uh, definitely coming from not only a blue, but uh, program, but probably the best program in, in all of college football to begin with. So he would have to be the early odds and odds on favorite to be the starting quarterback, whether it's something that's established at the end of spring practice or something that only reveals itself 
the first couple of weeks of fall camp. Uh, that remains to be seen. Again, obviously, with a new offensive coordinator, you don't know uh, what their approach is when naming a starting quarterback. Is that something that is uh, feasible, conducive to do uh, at the end of spring practice, or is it something that really needs to be only stated in fall camp? But I'm just trying to have modest expectations uh, for this season because it's not that only ASU has to replace some wide receivers, also has, also has to replace his top two running backs in Rashad White and Chip Trainum. And even though I think uh, Xavier Valade, the running back transfer from Wyoming, is somebody who could be an, an, an adequate, adequate replacement, uh, maybe minimize the drop-off that ASU is going to experience after the departure of Rashad White to the NFL draft, uh, even though I think uh, wide receivers such as Ricky Parasol and LV Bunkley-Shelton uh, can be those wide receivers that can take the, the next step right now. The burden of proof still lies on them, and I think the overall depth of the wide receiver group is also a question mark uh, for, the, from the, for the Sun Devils. So, you know, these are all factors that obviously can affect the production of the offense and obviously the production of Paul Tyson if he were to be the, the, the starting quarterback. But I feel that the eight wins that we saw last season from the Sun Devils, that's probably a reasonable number of wins that can be achieved, assuming Paul Tyson is the one that wins the job, and that the wide receiver group and running back group as a whole are able to put up respectable numbers. Uh, you know, It might be hard for the running back group as a whole to put up the numbers that ASU enjoyed with Rashad White and Jenny Daniels, uh, for that matter. But uh, when it comes to the wide receivers group, uh, maybe you could actually see uh, better numbers being posted over there. So again, eight wins last season, eight wins in 2022. I don't think it's out of the question, but this is by no means my season prediction. There's a lot of months uh, <laughs> ahead of us before September. I need to see spring practice. I need to see full camp before I would make a more educated guess as to how many wins, what kind of record the Sun Devils will have in 2022. The next question comes from Justin311. Do you anticipate a notice of allegations to come out this summer? And that's something that I touched on before when I started this podcast. It's really hard to ascertain the timing of the NCAA. I know that as of last week, no current staff members of Arizona State have been interviewed by the NCAA, one would think that that's going to be the last stage of the investigation. And with no clear-cut date as to when that's going to happen, uh, you'd like to think that the NCAA would actually wait until mid-April after ASU would be done with their spring practice to conduct those interviews. But there's really no telling what their timetable is. So I've said all along that I would expect the no side allegations to definitely be done by the end of this calendar year. And I know that's not really saying much, and that's not really a uh, very definitive statement right there as we're just uh, about to wrap up only the second month in 2022. But I would be surprised if it actually spills over to 2023. And I know the NCAA definitely works on its own pace. As some say, you know, they work only 40 hours a week. Nothing over that. They, they take all their holidays. They take their several weeks of vacation every year. Uh, they're not really in a hurry 
to, to wrap it up anytime soon. I would hope that because ASU has been proactive in effectively dismissing not one but four assistant coaches because of their involvement with these recruiting violation allegations and also a couple of others, uh, staff members that are not uh, that are not part of the coaching staff also been dismissed in the last several months, that this goodwill that ASU is showing the NCAA is hopefully going to preclude them from serving a notice of allegations before the beginning of the 2022 season, which, as I mentioned, would put ASU in an extremely tough spot because there's no way that Herm Edwards, as a head coach, is coming out unscathed from this notice of allegations. There's no way that this notice of allegations really implies that Edwards did close, if not no wrong, and that he should remain the coach not only for the 2022 season, but also for the foreseeable future for the Sun Devils. So that's why if you're an ASU fan and you're trying to really endure as less interruptions as possible, if, if that makes sense, then I think that you should hope that it's not going to be before September, October, or maybe even November that the no of allegations will be served. I mean, again, I don't expect Herm Edwards to be the coach at 2020, in 2023. I know it was somewhat of a surprise, at least to me, that he was is going to be the coach in 2022, but I just don't see it happening in 2023. So my educated guess is that by the end of this calendar year, the no of allegations is going to be presented. If the NCAA feels that ASU has acted in goodwill, wasn't giving the NCAA the middle finger, we're not being defiant like USC was some 17 years ago with the Reggie Bush case, uh, I think that uh, that that, it, that ASU might get the notice of allegations probably towards the end of the 2022 regular season. And that way, when Herm Edwards does resign, because I don't think he's going to be fired, uh, I think that uh, that would be maybe a more uh, desirable, as much of an oxymoron of a term that is, regarding this uh, outcome for the timing of the no of allegations. The next question also comes from Santan Devil, uh, basically making a statement here, the new quarterback doesn't have to do much in terms of replacing passing stats. One can argue that Daniel's mobility is an X factor between what ASU accomplished and let's say an, an anemic uh, University of Arizona offense, for example. Uh, watching college football this year maybe yearn for passing offense as anemic as most because ASU didn't even have that. And I think I think that's a great uh, point because, again, if we're assuming that Paul Tyson is going to be the starting quarterback for Arizona State, it's a given that he is not going to be a dual-threat signal caller like J.D. Daniels was. Uh, J.D. Daniels had, if I'm not mistaken, over 700 uh, ru- rushing yards as a quarterback. Uh, Paul Tyson is going to have much less than half of that. So that is not necessarily a bad predicament for an offense to be because if you are really producing an efficient scheme that your players are able to execute each and every Saturday, then having your quarterback be be dual threat or not be dual threat is not really the end all be all. It's really dependent on so many, on so many different factors. And I think if Tyson Need is need to gain you know a couple yards here or there. He can do it. I mean, don't forget he's 
he has a big, uh, big 6'5", 230-pound frame. Uh, so he's somebody that uh, is not going to be exactly easy, even for defensive linemen, let alone linebackers, to tackle on any given down. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it really like an anemic offense, but an offense that has less of the dual-threat quarterback element, yes, I think you can expect that from the Sun Devils, again, assuming that Paul Tyson is going to be the starting quarterback. And no, I don't think that necessarily means that the ASU offense is doomed, that the ASU offense is going to put much worse numbers on the stat sheet than they did in 2021 or 2020. So, uh, yes, I, I think that that is something that is very, very uh, feasible for to have a quarterback that's very different than the last two starters, Jaden Daniels and Manny Wilkins, where the dual threat element is almost non-existent, but you have other skill sets that can more than negate that uh, lack, lack of ability. Uh, the next question uh, comes from Envy Sun Devil. Um, all this discussion surrounding Daniels leaving and what is now the quarterback room, has there been any chatter about uh, looking for the portal for a more experienced, uh, experienced quarterback? And they're mentioning the name of uh, JT Daniels, who, if you recall, was a quarterback at USC, then transferred to Georgia, and with all the success that Georgia had as national champions, he wasn't really part of that in terms of uh, every every week starter. So he's, he's in transfer portal. So what, what are my thoughts about Daniels wanting to come back to the West Coast and play for somebody like ASU? I think that it's really premature right now to have Arizona State feel an urgent need to replace Daniels and, t- and take another quarterback in the portal. I probably should have mentioned that earlier when I was asked about the additions. Just because you you really don't know what you have right now with with a, with a quarterback group. I mean, as much as much as talk about Paul Tyson, I mean, you still also have a true freshman uh, Ben, ben Meredith who's who's on campus, and hard to say, you know, how well he can look in in spring practice. And you don't want to dismiss uh, the returning quarterbacks, uh, Dylan McLemore, uh, Trent Trent Bourget, Finn Collins. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that they feel now even a greater sense of urgency to assert themselves now that Daniels is no longer part of the roster. So I think ASU is definitely going to take a wait-and-see approach on if they are going to add a quarterback uh, from the transfer portal. But again, I'm not expecting that to happen if it were to happen, and I think it's a big if, before the before mid-April. They need to really get through spring practice, see what they have in terms of the talent, talent level, or I should say maybe overall talent level of the quarterback room, and only then, new offensive coordinator Glenn Thomas can make an educated uh, statement or assertion that he needs or does not need a quarterback from the transfer portal. And as I mentioned earlier, ASU right now does have some tight numbers in terms of the number of additions they can actually have on the team. So they really need to wait for probably an existing quarterback to leave the team first before even replacing them with another one. Um, I think it's a great situation right now for the Sun Devils that they do have five scholarship quarterbacks. I think it's been a long time since they actually had that large of a number. But obviously, when you talk about a quarterback position, only one player can play at a time, and you have five players on scholarship, it only stands to reason that the one or maybe even two quarterbacks that simply don't see a future for themselves as having any chance of seeing the field on Saturdays are probably going to enter themselves in the transfer portal again do do so before May 1st so they can have immediate eligibility in in their new destination. So I think ASU right now is definitely in a, in a wait-and-see approach when it comes to possibly adding another quarterback. 
Um, another question that was, that was asked over here from Envy Sun Devil is that all this off the field events have, uh, have surely taken a toll on Herm Edwards. Do you have any inside information as, regarding his decision to quote unquote retire? So as I mentioned, I was somewhat surprised that he still wanted the drama. And I know I'm being a little uh, facetious over here and actually coach still in, in, in the 2022 season. And sure, you can make the argument that it was really hard to find under the circumstances, a good caliber head coach to replace Edwards going into this season. So maybe it just made sense to, to keep him on staff. And I know that that has created a lot of disappointment, a lot of uh, angst among um, among the Sun Devil fans, and, and I think for very good reason. I'm not going to even uh, pretend to say that ASU fans are being too harsh when it comes to their disappointment that Herm Edwards is still the coach in, in, in 2022. You like to think that this program, more than anything else, needs a fresh start. You know, on the other hand, you're still in a state of limbo because of the no-sub allegations of the NCAA has not been presented. If the investigation has not concluded, uh, it's kind of hard maybe to bring a new head coach under the circumstances. So the retirement, I believe, is going to take place, again, this calendar year, whether it happens before the season or Herm Edwards can coach the entire 2022 season and then retire. That's really the bigger question mark over here. But I do not expect them when the calendar flips to January 1st, 2023, to still be the head coach at Arizona State, even if it's crystal clear that he's leaving, there's no reason for the Sun Devils to really delay the inevitable. Going back to an earlier point that I made, it's going to be really hard for an athletic director such as Ray Anderson, who is quite uh, on, on the hot seat in Tempe, to hire a coach and for that candidate, knowing that he's coming into a situation like Arizona State where the athletic director that hired him is definitely not going to be here for the long term. So that's just a very bizarre uh, predicament, if not frustrating predicament, uh, for any head coach candidates, obviously for the ASU fans that, that are following the team. But again, as much uncertainty as surrounds this program, I think one thing, at least in my eyes, is pretty crystal clear, and is that Herm Edwards is going to retire by the end of this calendar year. Whether it's going to happen before or after the season, that's only the question mark, but I do not anticipate him being the coach in 2023. Uh, another question that was asked by Envy Sun Devil, whenever uh, it's referring to Jaden Daniels and his camp, are we assuming that that's his mother? How much is she involved? Uh, there seems to be more than a few instances where she was brought into the conversation. And then taking a step further, how would the NFL feel about uh, her involvement in that regard? Um, let me answer like the second part of the question first. When it comes to the NFL, trust me, head coaches, front offices, they don't even deal with parents. Even if it's a rookie that might be barely 21 years old, trust me, they have no interest whatsoever talking to the parent, talking to any family members. It is strictly a business. So I don't think that's really going to be something that is going to really hinder Jenny Daniels as he pursues the, a professional career. But in terms of, you know, her being part of the camp and being very, very involved, let me just put it this way. I think that Jaden Daniels' mom is very, very involved 
with a lot of the decisions, a lot of the actions uh, that, that he takes. And if Jaden Daniels' mom did not did not want Jaden to be in the portal, then I don't think Jaden would be in the portal. I, I think I think that much is fair to say. Uh, you know, me not being there personally in any conversations that took place between her and the ASU staff, or in the reports that allegedly mention that she or maybe other people surrounding Jaden Daniels had conversations, indirect one conversations, I should say, with Power Five teams through third-party proxies, if you will. Uh, again, that's something that I wasn't there. I can only go by the by the reports that are out there. If you're asking me for my opinion, whether that's a feasible or non-feasible theory, yes, I do think that that, that is a feasible theory. So the bottom line here is that, yes, I do think she definitely had involvement. I think it's only natural that a mother would be involved in her son's decision, but I am not going to speak to the level of involvement, the the exact nature of involvement of Jenny Jenny Daniels' mom in the transfer decision, in any alleged discussions through third parties with other Power 5 teams as they're seeking a new destination spot. I wasn't there, but I think if there's a report out there that is alleging that she was somehow involved in that, I would not refute that. But again, I definitely do not have any first-hand knowledge concerning that topic. The next question comes from David Begg. Actually, a few questions over here. First was, uh, do you see Herm Edwards and Ray Anderson still with ASU after the 2022 calendar year? Again, I believe that Herm Edwards will be gone by the end of the 2022 calendar year. I believe he's going to resign more specifically, whether it's going to happen before the season or whether he'll be allowed to coach the season. That is something that the NCAA really holds all the answers to with the timing of the release of notice of allegations. As far as Ray Anderson, I think he still might be here in 2023. I don't think he'll be here in 2024. As I mentioned earlier, to have both of them resign in the same calendar year, athletic director, and head football coach, I don't think that even with all the drama, even with the uncomfortable uh, athletic department culture that exists right now in Tempe, I still think that that's one scenario they, they would like to avoid. But make no mistake about it. I mean, Ray Anderson does carry a lot of responsibility of what it has transpired in the football program. He threw his weight behind Herm Edwards. He talked about the new pro model that he wanted to exist here in Tempe. And that is just an approach that did not yield any eye-popping win-loss records, did not yield any division championships, conference championships, Rose Bowl appearances. And if that wasn't disappointing enough, now comes the whole saga with the NCAA investigation, which Again, the end of this process is is nowhere in sight. So University President Michael Crow is definitely, I feel, compelled to make a change at athletic director just because when your flagship program, the football team, does underachieve on the field and off the field, it's just an absolute mess with his recruiting violation allegations. It's really hard to justify any athletic director staying in place, let alone staying in place for the long-term future. And another question that David did bring up is, 
does the university president, Dr. Michael Crow, even care about athletics, even care about the football program? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. I know that a lot of fans are upset that he was really driving the decision to suspend the three assistant coaches back in the summer. Like I said, two of them, Gill and Hawkins, just days into fall camp just because of what the early results of the NCAA investigation did provide. So there's definitely a lot of, I would even say disgust from from the ASU fans towards uh, Dr. Crow concerning that. But I feel that ultimately he is a supporter of athletics. He's a supporter of the football program. I know there was what's supposed to be a scathing report, and I didn't see that at all that ASU spend the most money, not only out of all Pac-12 schools, but out of all Power 5 programs, just taking money from the general fund of the university and supporting its athletics department during a very tough COVID year, which revenues were pretty much uh, non-existent. But due to that large expenditure, ASU, unlike many Pac-12 programs, let alone many programs around the country, did not have to fire any staff, did not have to put any staff through furloughs or through salary cuts. So that was the byproduct of Michael Crow just allocating tens of millions of dollars to the athletic department just to make sure that it could run appropriately. Now, obviously, he did this before the NCAA investigation, but I don't think that the investigation itself would really compel him not to spend money because he just wanted this athletic department to run as efficiently as possible, not to incur any staff reductions or just uh, inavailability of staff due to furloughs uh, during, during during the COVID year. I frankly don't understand why some ASU fans were upset about that money being spent. I think that, uh, during a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic to do anything you can for somebody to, to, to keep their job is definitely a noble thing to do at a minimum. And again, Michael Crow at that point did not know that the program was involved in alleged recruiting violations. The NCAA investigation was not a matter of fact when he allocated <clears throat> those monies, and that, that's something that's really important in my mind to, to point out there. So, you may or may not agree with all the actions that Michael Crow has taken regarding the football program, and I think that's a fair point. But to say that he doesn't care, to say he doesn't want to see that program successful, I think that's a bit of a reach. And the last question from David really goes to what I said earlier is the essence of Jaden Daniels' decision, NIL. He wants to know how ASU is going to be handling the NIL. Can ASU put a system in place to understand it better, to create enough to compete. And David thinks that ASU needs to be spending 8 to $10 million, I'm assuming annually, uh, if not more, on recruiting right now. So I think that's the last sentence is really important to differentiate over here. ASU cannot facilitate any NIL deals between any student athlete, football player or tennis player, and a business out there that wants to engage in an NIL agreement. ASU is compelled to review each NIL agreement so it doesn't violate the current laws in place, laws that could change for good or for worse in just a drop of a pin with NIL landscape being so novel. 
but it really comes down to the support of businesses that may or may not be corporate sponsors of ASU, but do have a vested interest in the athletic department as a whole and their willingness to support student athletes. Again, not only football players, but it's really across the board. And in terms of having a dollar figure on it, I know it's definitely going to be something that would have to be a couple million annually in terms of just keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, when it comes to other football programs in the Pac-12 and a lot of football programs just across the nation. Is that a pipe dream? Is that something that's absolutely unattainable? I really can't argue with that assessment because, look, can ASU compete with both L.A. schools and even Oregon and the vast amount of money that they have in terms of their annual budget, in terms of the breadth of opportunities, business opportunities for NILs in cities such as Los Angeles? Of course not. But look, Phoenix is not a horse and buggy town. It's the fifth largest city in the nation. The Phoenix Metropolitan is, I believe, number 11 in the nation. So there definitely are business opportunities that can turn into NIL opportunities for student-athletes in Tempe and the surrounding area. That I don't think there's really a shortage of that by any means, but you don't have that track record of big businesses in the Phoenix metropolitan area really supporting ASU for several, several years. Now, some can argue, say, look, maybe this football program in the last several decades really hasn't given much for the business community to be eager and throw their name out there in Tempe as much as they can. And now with the NIL rules, really have a lot of football players be attached to NIL advertisement agreements. And that's a fair point. But I do agree that whether it's like a chicken chicken and the egg type of deal, you know, does does the success of the program have to lead to businesses really providing more lucrative NIL deals, both in quality and quantity, or do the business community really have to take that first step? Because if there is going to be a visible track record of ASU football players getting pretty lucrative NIL deals year in and year out, then when it comes to recruiting, and that's probably more recruiting of high school prospects, but make no mistake about it, a lot of transfer portal prospects look at NIL too, then you just make Tempe a more desirable destination, not because it's only a great team, you know, great great place to live and great coaches, good track record on the field, but also because of what exists off the field. And look, and I know that one thing that football fans and maybe even just college sports fans in general general are are basically in agreement in that NAL has changed the landscape of college football and really of college sports in a vast manner and probably also in a pretty adverse manner. And that's a discussion for, for a whole nother day, but NIL is here now. NIL is here to stay. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. And ASU and the business community, the local business community that is, are going to have to have some deep, meaningful discussions 
to create a landscape that is going to offer NIL deals lucrative, both in quantity and quality NIL deals for current football players and for future current football players. How feasible is that scenario from becoming reality? That's really anybody's guess. But to answer your question, David, yes, that's absolutely something that has to be done. And time will tell if it actually does get done. Because what happened with Jaden Daniels, to me, could be just the tip of the iceberg in terms of current star players seeking greener pastures. And greener is not only with having a better program that can win national championships, but also greener in terms of the dollars and cents that NIL agreements can generate. So let's move on to the questions that I did get from social media. The first question comes from Flora, who, uh, before asking her question, also brings some receipts, saying that she remembers Ray Anderson saying that he would judge the coaching position on winning, recruiting, and retaining coaches. Uh, Just to be clear, he said that during his press conference where he dismissed previous head coach Todd Graham. Anderson also said in that press conference that 7-5 and five in second place in the Riddle Pac-12 South is not our aspiration. Anderson in that press conference did go on to say that we deserve more. We have the capacity in the university in the community that deserves more. So Flora goes on to say that as a fan and alumni, she agrees with Anderson on the statements that he made then and agrees with the same exact sentiment right now but she's not sure how Herm Edwards has come close to fulfilling those expectations. So she's, her question is, how would you believe Herm Edwards has satisfied those expectations that Ray Anderson laid out? And how does it compare to the Todd Graham era? So when you look at the record in the first three years of both Todd Graham and Herm Edwards, I think there's no question that Todd Graham was definitely more successful and really Winning 28 games in the first three years, I believe that wasn't done since the Frank Cush years. And I guess if you look across the landscape of college football, that's definitely not a feat that programs not named, you know, Oklahoma, Alabama, Ohio State are really able to achieve. And Todd Graham obviously had back-to-back double-digit win seasons. One of those years actually won the Pac-12 South. And Herm Edwards, in his first uh, three years, and granted there's a COVID year, which marks the the, the last year, only had 17 wins. So maybe somewhat of an incomplete uh, picture over there if you're comparing the first three years of Graham, the first three years of Edwards. But there's no denying that Todd Graham did have much earlier success than Edwards had over here in Tempe. And obviously the icing on the cake is having that Pac-12 South championship in Todd Graham's second year in in Tempe. But I think another aspect to look at it as far as who's a more successful coach, and granted, you know, Herm Edwards has not coached the same number of years as Todd Graham and probably won't when it's all said and done, but Todd Graham did have back-to-back losing seasons, uh, six and seven in 2015, uh, five and seven in 2016, And Herm Edwards, with all the issues surrounding the program, has yet to endure a losing season during his Tempe tenure. Now, some may say that this might come in this coming season. We'll see. But I think it's fair to say 
that Herm Edwards' tenure, when, just when it comes to strict win and loss record, is definitely not more successful than Todd Graham. Now, Todd Graham did fizzle out, if you will, in the, in the last three years in Tempe. Six and seven, five and seven, and seven and six in his very last year as ASU's head coach. Uh, Herm Edwards has been pretty consistent with mediocrity, if you will, never winning more than eight games. You know, the COVID year, again, you can take it for what it is, but a four-game season, two and two, I mean, you, you can read into it as much as you want. But Herm Edwards has not come, even come close to a double-digit win season, and Todd Graham did have two of those campaigns. But at the same time, those campaigns came much earlier in his tenure and the last three years of his tenure were definitely nothing to write, to write home about. But I guess on its face, you would have to say that Todd Graham, in terms of success on the field and in, in wins and losses, yes, did have more success than Herm Edwards in the Herm Edwards era, which I believe is going to end this year. When it's all said and done, I still you can make that claim that Todd Graham was more successful than Herm Edwards. Now, when you talk about recruiting, you know, somewhat off the field topic, if you will. I think that Herm Edwards did elevate recruiting to a higher standard than than Todd Graham established. Todd Graham did have some good recruiting classes earlier in his tenure, which obviously corresponded with the win and loss record that he had on the field. But let's not forget that Todd Graham, especially in the last few years of his tenure, had a hard time attracting prospects from the state of California, period, let alone just good prospects. So that's something that I think that Herm Edwards, with the help of Antonio Pierce, uh, was able to do on, on, on a more consistent basis. I also feel that, schematically speaking, that Todd Graham did not land really good players on defense to the caliber that Herm Edwards did during his years in Tempe, especially in the defensive backfield. Let's not forget that Todd Graham in 2015 and 16 had the worst passing defense in the entire FBS level. And Herm Edwards, even though his defenses weren't stellar the entire tenure in Tempe, I think that by and large, those were better defensive units really from day one. And I know we can make the argument that Herm Edwards possibly enjoyed some of the players that were left over from from the Todd Graham era. But uh, let's not forget that a lot of freshmen – that were brought in by Herm Edwards in his first year as Arizona State's head coach. Uh, Jermaine Lillet, Merlin Robinson, Darren Butler uh, are definitely players that elevated the, the, the ASU defense quite a bit. So, again, the bottom line, if, if somebody like yourself is asking me who's more successful to date, Todd Graham or Herm Edwards, I would have to say from a wins and loss perspective, from winning division championships, you would have to say Todd Graham. But in terms of the recruiting aspect, I think that Herm Edwards is is more successful, especially when you compare his first few years to Todd Graham's last few years. The next question comes from Jake Soley, and I don't suspect, I know for a fact, that he is related to linebackers, brothers, Kyle and Connor Soley for Arizona State. I'd like to know if other players are seen likely to transfer, namely, Los Angeles area-wide receivers such as L.V. Bunkley-Shelton or Chad Johnson Jr. Is ASU at a risk of a mass exodus of Los Angeles area players? And look, I mean, I think Jake brings up a good point. I mean, Jaden Daniels obviously had some very deep ties with some of the uh, 
wide receivers specifically on, on, on this ASU team from the from the LA area and him leaving Arizona State doesn't exactly increase the chances of guys like Buckley Shelton and Chad Johnson Jr. staying with the team. I think that if you're going to leave to the transfer portal this late in the year, you have to have some kind of level of leverage. And Janine Daniels, which you hope for his sake, does have a realistic picture of the leverage that he has, what the destination place is going to look for him, and that's why he left when he left. It's a different level of leverage, maybe compared to somebody like Bunkley Shelton or, or, or Chad Johnson Jr. So you'd like to think that if any of those two players, or just any player in general, is going to leave Arizona State before May 1st, which again is a deadline to get in the transfer portal and be immediately eligible in your college of choice, that they would really examine that leverage aspect close and hard. But I think a lot of it is really going to be dictated by what transpires in spring practice. Players like L.V. Buckley Shelton, Chad Johnson Jr., they do have the same wide receivers coach in Bobby Wade, who was an interim position coach, graduate assistant to be exact, last season, and now is going to be a full-time wide receivers coach for the Sun Devils. So in that sense, nothing has really changed for those two players trying to get used to a new coach and whatnot. But obviously with the new offensive coordinator, Glenn Thomas, it's hard to say if the system that he implements is one that's going to compel any of those wide receivers to actually stay uh, at Arizona State, obviously, depending on who the starting quarterback is going to be, if it's all going to create a situation where those wide receivers and just other players in general just don't feel the itch to leave. And again, if you're going to put yourself in the transfer portal, you have to have some kind of, as I mentioned earlier, a, a third-party proxy that you're getting a very realistic, and realistic really being the operative word here, sense of if I'm going to leave Arizona State, where am I going to end up at? We saw linebacker Jordan Banks, a very heralded four-star prospect out of high school. Things did not go well for him at Arizona State, and he ends up playing for Central Michigan. I mean, not even a power five program. Jordan Porter, ironically talking about wide receivers, he actually committed to the University of Buffalo and then decommitted. And and I'm pretty sure that as we speak right now, he still doesn't have a, a, a college destination. Now you have guys like Johnny Wilson, wide receiver, ends up at Florida State. Okay, you can say good decision for him. You know, then he got Chip Trainum, who I'm, I still don't know how to really digest his decision of leaving, leaving for a team like Ohio State, which, okay, great, you know, close to home, marquee program, but he had to switch positions from running back to linebacker in order to play for Ohio State. That is one heck of a sacrifice, and I don't know if I said this in previous podcasts, but I'll say it right now. I am very doubtful that he's going to be a successful linebacker, especially at a program like Ohio State. I think he is a solid college running back, but in terms of him being a successful Linebacker, especially for like Ohio State, I definitely have my doubts. But just bring it back to, to your question, Jake. I really think it just comes down to 
what takes place in spring practice. Are players going to be happy with their niche in the two deep? And if they are going to go into the transfer portal, what do they truly expect to happen? And this is where the support system and their effectiveness in really understanding the landscape is absolutely huge. So sometimes the support system may give those players bad advice. Sometimes that support system actually might tell those players to stay and the players still want to leave. It's really hard to judge, but I would say just in general, even if Jenny Daniels was still a member of this roster and was absolutely going to be the quarterback in 2022, you are going to see some attrition post-spring practice. You're going to see some players that are simply just not happy with their niche in the, in, in, in the two deep, whether that player is going to be LV Bunkley Shelton, Chad Johnson Jr., or anybody else, that, that really remains to be seen. But that's just one question that, at least in my opinion, is hard to answer right here, right now, before spring practice even started. And the last question from social media from Morty Shapiro. Is Alabama transfer quarterback Paul Tyson capable of playing and leading the Sun Devils in 2022? I know I referred to this topic earlier in the podcast, but I'll say it again. He is by far the most experienced quarterback on the roster right now. He's definitely coming from a marquee program in college football you like to you like to think that anything that's has been or will be thrown to him in Tempe is not going to be foreign. Is not something that somebody with his level of experience, even though he was not a starter at Tuscaloosa, could not could not handle. So, I heard a lot of good feedback about him and how he looked in workouts ever since he arrived here in January. And even though no nobody from the coaches publicly is going to say that he is the clubhouse leader to be the starting quarterback in Tempe. I would be surprised when it's not all said and done that he won't be named the starter. And this is no slight to the other four scholarship quarterbacks on the roster, but I just feel that with his level of experience, with his with his physical tools, I do believe that he is somebody that can absolutely lead this ASU offense. The big question to me is the support system around him. ASU, as you know, has to replace not one, but three starters on the offensive line. We talked about what they have to replace at running back. You know, you talk about at wide receiver, you know, replacing Johnny Wilson, who technically was a starter, but didn't, re- didn't really play all that much. I still think that, you know, th- that it could be a challenge. And just that group of wide receivers as a whole, can they finally take that next step? Because I feel that their level of play definitely had some impact on Jaden Daniels' very pedestrian numbers in 2021. The, the, the tight ends group, which, you know, I've been talking a lot in my premium uh, my message board, Devil's Huddle, I think that's one program that, I think, I'm sorry, that's one unit that under the radar has really, really been upgraded uh, since the last year and really has the potential to be even more involved in, in the passing game for Arizona State. How much can that be really an X factor especially in a brand new offense, especially in an offense that now is going to break in a new starting quarterback. So there's definitely a lot of buzz around Paul Tyson right now. I think that buzz for now is justified. We still need to see what he can do in spring practice. That goes without saying. Does he establish himself as the starting quarterback or the one player that is in the best position to assume that role? Or do we really have to wait until full camp to, to, to make that decision. And again, now that you have a new offensive coordinator in place, that really just makes the situation 
that much more uncertain. And I don't mean uncertain really in an adverse way, but just really much more of an unknown, if you will. So I think Paul Tyson is capable of leading this offense and, and, and doing a good job. But ultimately, the support system around him is really going to dictate a lot. And as I mentioned, there really are a lot of holes to fill, especially at offensive line and running back. So that will do it for this week's episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Uh, thank you so much for everybody who sent in their questions. I hope I was able to shed some light on the various topics surrounding Arizona State football. Our next podcast is really going to concentrate on a spring practice preview. There are a lot of new faces uh, on the team that are really going to reshape some of the position groups, and we're going to cover all of that. And obviously, aside from our podcast, uh, we're going to have several articles on, on, on those topics on my website, devilsdigest.com. Again, if you're not a subscriber, I would really encourage you to sign up and become one. There's going to be a lot of content uh, coming up in the weeks and months to come. Thanks again for joining us, and have a great week. I was living in a devil town I didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town